Hello, and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week, me, Russell, who I am, spoke with Marianne Williamson. Do you know who she is? She's an author, spiritual leader, and political activist. She stood for the Democrats in 2020. That my favourite bit was where she went, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of this collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. I think that's what she said. And I think that's how she said it. Yeah, she's got that southern kind of accent. Has she? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Like a preacher's accent. I guess she is a preacher. She's a preacher. Banter decanter. She's a preacher. Did you enjoy the conversation? What did you eat during that? I didn't eat anything during it. Quavers, what's it? Quavers. Smith so Square. Cri- what do you like? Tell me your Irish Tatoes. snacks. What are they called? Them crisps? Potatoes. Potatoes. <laughs> Have you got any confectionery over there that's your own Irish stuff? Uh, I don't know. Because they would just be normal to me, right? You'd come over Dairy here. Dairy milk. Huh? Dairy milk. <laughs> Don't cause trouble, Jen. That is a very, very English thing. <laughs> that is the kind of thing. But I used to drive by the Dairy Milk factory at the, on the way to school. Oh, did you? Yeah. Sat in the back of your little wagon, going past the Dairy Milk factory. <laughs> what a sweet... No, but go by the leisure place. Sweet tail. <laughs> shaking hands of old man Cadbury himself, was you? Oh. Supping on a cream egg as you passed. Oh. <laughs> so... Justin says my voice is good, does he? Yeah, he thinks it's really good. He was really complimentary. Way more compliments than I've ever given Why you. Why don't we put all of his compliments into a little thing and we play it on the podcast? <laughs> That's an interesting item. <laughs> compliments. <laughs> do you want me to just do box pops of people complimenting you? We could do that, Jen. It'll be nice. It'll be nice you. to have a compilation of compliments. <laughs> you can play at night. I'd listen to them in the day, Jen, before I see you. Oh. That's when I would play them. Or after. Might be... No, Jen, I'd come into it strong. <laughs> then I wouldn't okay. need you in this way. Now, uh, now, Marianne Williamson is good because she's had this political experience. I challenged her about the Biden administration. One of my favourite bits in this conversation is when I said, do you think that the Democrats would prefer that Bernie lost and give up a term to Trump than have the Democrat party controlled by someone who is a sincere leftist? That's, one of the, that's a good bit of the chat, don't you think? Yeah. Didn't you say that? Oh, you said that with Glenn as well, didn't you? I'm always saying it now. I've started to realise it. I've started to realise it might be an important point about the way that politics functions, Jane. I don't know what you think, Yeah, because he said that it was the same with Corbyn. That's right. He did say the same with Corbyn. You're going to love this Glenn Greenwald episode when it comes up. So very intense, very brilliant, strong communicator. Yeah. Oof. Very nice. (laughs) I invited myself around his house, Yeah, that was weird. You did that with Annie Lennox too. What is this with certain people? Sometimes I want to go around their house. Because you want to snoop? It's not a snoop. It's I can imagine myself there. But, oh. I mean, I'm sure when it came to it. I miss Annie Lennox, actually. Annie Lennox, I hope you're listening. We love you. I was watching Top of the Pops and she was on it. Huh? <laughs> I was watching Top of the Pops and she was What there. was it? Sweet Dreams Are Made of These? Yeah. It was that one? Yeah, it was like 1980-something. She was stood there with Dave Stewart. She was singing that, short hair. Yeah, she still has short hair. Achingly beautiful. Yeah. What do you want from life? Um... Okay, hold on, we've not had any banter. That, was that not Annie Lennox banter? Well, there's no banter, then, I'm not ridiculed. You maybe I ridiculed oh, you a so bit So the banter about... means ridicule. <laughs> Playful teasing, Jen. Necessary today. It's the way that we communicate lovingly. It's what people do, Jen, go. Okay. Normal people. Can you communicate with people who don't like that? 
Yeah, but it's a bit more flat and dry, just like an exchange of Ritz crackers instead of a glorious <laughs> quivering trifle with jelly and sherry and cream and custard and everything you'd expect from a lovely quivering trifle or spilling all over your lap like silly old trifle or getting caught in your hair and in your breeches silly old trifle at the bottom of your welly squelching between your toes silly old trifle slowly going off maggots writhing writhing into an open wound and an abscess on a foot full of maggots eggs that, Jen, is the glory of love. Ugh. <laughs> Listener shout-outs, and I know for a fact we've got a jingle about that. Listener shout-outs. Yeah, it's your hip-hop one. Good. Erskine Lenier, listening to Luminary in California, USA, says, Thank you, Russell, and your... I think there's a typo here. Lovely sidekick, Jenny May Finn. That's a typo. I love your podcast as you two and those you interview have leveraged me even further into the moment and out of hidden beliefs that have been about for so long. Well done, Erskine Lenier. Jonathan Hughes says, A big hats off to you, Russell. I love the way you were deeply moved by your interview with Vandana. Many... I can hear you back there. What's the problem? What's the problem this week, Jen? No, because you didn't like it, though. People kept saying that. Saying what? You were deeply moved. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I, Jen? Why well, didn't I? I can't say what you thought it was. Weakness, vulnerability? Yeah. Yeah. Vulnerability. But I allowed it to happen, Jen. I allowed the shift to take place within me. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you for shining a light where you do. <laughs> And for joining the dots that you do. It's a dirty <laughs> image, that, isn't it? Shining a light and joining some dots. That if Why? Just, Why? It, I just imagine it being on what? some sort of crevice. A dot? <laughs> the light. <laughs> and the dots are within the crevice. Oh. It's sort of taking like, place in the sort of... dots. Yeah, it's in a foot <laughs> clinic and they're moles or perhaps they're... No. They're verrucas. <laughs> they're verrucas, Jen. You don't see it that way. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Russell, mate, he says. I take it as a personal wake-up call. Anyway, look, Jonathan, yeah, thanks, man. I loved that chat with her. It was, a, it was beautiful. Remember, I'm doing a new med- meditation podcast every Wednesday. Listen to it. Comment on it. Tell me what you think, even if you're a beginner or if you're actually a llama listening to this sort of in Tibet and you've like, been doing spiritual stuff since you were four years old, taken from your family, groomed into a life of spirituality. We'd love to hear from you, if you don't mind, if you've got the time. And remember to get my book, Revelation. Join up to the mailing list on russellbrand.com. Live events will be coming soon. You'll hear about them first. We'll be doing some live events, won't we, Jen? You'll be there, Jen. Why will I do? Well, you'll be in a sort of some sort of boiler suit, I think. And you're possibly wearing a very tight cap. A sort of a rubbery cap. What? A sort of swimming cap. Tighten up, really restrictive across your really no, binding your brow. I don't like brow. this outfit. Have you ever worn a swimming cap? Yeah. <laughs> you what? S- have you? Never. And were you swimming at the time, Jen? Or was it just on when you were one of your little yeah. Norwich trotterbouts? No, swimming. Ooh, where were you? In a swimming pool. Th- which one? Whereabouts? I don't know. I've been in loads across my which life. Which one were you wearing? And what colour was it? Them. I don't know. Green? No. Red? No. I think it was probably blue. Probably went for the blue. I think I had a white one, but... A white one. 
Nu må de bare lave goggles, for I kan lave svimmer. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me, I was dreaming I had goggles on. Exactly. That's right, Jen. Why? I'm finding my way into your unconscious mind, Jen. And that's when I'll lay yeah, my eggs. Yeah, goggles on in my dream. Why are you wearing goggles oh, in your dream? I was assuming I was in Where Mordu. Where were you? It's in Mordu. There was someone else there, I think. Who was it? I don't know. What did you feel about the person? Did you like them? Did I think they the gobble, you, goggles. Did they have goggles on too? So one of the goggles wasn't working, I don't think. Of course they weren't. You can't see clearly, Jen. The goggles don't work, Jen. Your perspective is warped. No. Now, you're lost in the water, Jen. You're drowning in your perspective. There's oh, a dog loose in the water. There's a dog loose in the water. Sorry, I'm not interested in that. There's a dog <laughs> loose in the woods, Jen. There's a dog loose in the woods. <laughs> That's from Watch It Now. All right. So, listen, let me know what you think about everything. Tell me your intimate feelings on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. You'll find me if you want me. And if you want to send me an email, if you need help, help at Russell Brown. We'll connect you to communities that will help you. We have volunteers and indeed people that pay to do that now, to direct you towards the correct facility if you're ill in some way, mostly mentally health illness, for God's sake, obviously. All right. I remember to go and meditate and all that stuff. And should we get in with Marianne Williamson? Do you think she's listening to this? No. Of our th- nor do I. Now, of our three conversations, Jen, mm-hmm. not me, me and you, we've had many <laughs> conversations, sadly, uh, but of me and Marianne Williamson. Yeah, this one. Was the best, would yeah. you say? Yeah. Because the first one was quite challenging. Yeah. That's when we went to... Palm, when I did it, we did our Palm Springs 24-hour 24-hour Palm hour Springs. No, 20, did we yeah. sit next to each other on the plane? I came up to first class to say hi, but then they wouldn't let me upgrade. Maybe. It's a shame. They were really, it's because there was a trainee and she was following all the rules. <laughs> And then we were in Palm Springs for a bit. Yep. Some sort of yoga thing. Yeah, that was quite stressful. Was for it? me. Why? Because I had to manage everything. Ugh, terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Terribly we challenging. We had that, that driver who was kind of like a police cop. What? Yeah. Did I like him? Yeah, because he was just, he couldn't make eye contact with you. Remember, he was American and he was just always talking in like 10-4 or whatever. 10-4, yes, sir, Roger. Roger that, sir. Yeah, and then the BA guy was the exact opposite, that British guy. Dad, come on, mate. Let's me and you just sit down. Sir, you're infringing on the client's personal space. Would you mind stepping off? Yeah. Then you got stuck in secondary. Oh, yeah, always. My little sit down for the naughty years of yesterday. All right. So let's get Marianne Williamson on. Yeah. Here she is. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Marianne. Thank you for coming on. Should we are you happy to do the podcast? Oh, I'm so glad. And thank you so much, Russell. You were so kind to me. You've been very supportive. I just want you to know how grateful I am for how kind you were during the campaign. So thank you. Thank you. I was, ex- I was excited to see, however, briefly, a different strain of conversation introduced into the political sphere. Whilst, whilst people on the usually i suppose on the political left occasionally speak about compassion unity kindness togetherness it's i often find it's from a deracinated place of uh 
you know, I don't know, socialist politics can be quite dry rather than the richness that I associate with spiritual life. Having been through that experience now, what do you feel more or less cynical about politics and more or less cynical about the possibility of spirituality changing power? I feel more cynical about the, what I call the political media industrial complex, but I actually feel more inspired and motivated by the possibilities of democracy. I get the deep metaphysics of democracy. I get from the experience of running a sense that group conscience, that the idea of harnessing the wisdom and the intelligence and the decency and the dignity of people is, uh, as uh, Jefferson said, the only safe repository for power and governance. The problem is that our political system today does more to thwart and to obstruct the real emergence of, de of democracy than it does to, um, uh, to, to facilitate it. And that's where we have a problem. During the primaries, you said this thing, which so, you know, one of the moments that really struck, I think, perhaps the defining moment, and it was certainly one of my favourite moments of your campaign, when you said, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivised hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. Now, I, I was struck by that, by the, for me, that felt like a very truthful and powerful statement. In the in in the sense in the um, ascendancy, should we call it, of uh, Biden though, do you think we're seeing this wonkiness once again in in government? Uh, what what do you how do you determine, define, understand the Biden administration as anything other than the apotheosis of the wonkiness that you're describing there? Well, wonkiness does have a place in all this policies do matter. I see Trump as having been a death spiral. American democracy was in a death spiral. And I feel that Biden has interrupted that. But I feel that the entire neoliberal establishment still represents a slow and steady decline. So did, did, he, did he interrupt a pattern that was absolutely deadly? Yes. But if the um, trajectory continues to be one in which we are still allowing short-term profits for uh, multinational corporate conglomerates to take precedence over the safety, health, and well-being of people and planet, then we're just delaying the inevitable global catastrophe. A lot of stuff I do on YouTube, Marianne, I know appeals to people that were because I read the comments and stuff, you know, which is always a risk, that were like liked Trump, that were pro-Trump. A lot of these people are, are like ordinary Americans, you know. It's not as they have been characterized by the mainstream media that say sort of crazy, racist. You know, there, it seems to me like there's a lot of ordinary Americans that felt touched by the energy of Trump, the oppositionalism of Trump, the sense that this person was not a wonky career politician. You know, myself, to speak candidly, I'm not a pro-Trump person, you know. That's not where I, I think I we thought. know that. Right. <laughs> Good, cool. Thank you. Um, 
you know but like i i i'm still fascinated not only by the impact he had on cultural life uh, but also by now what do we imagine is going to happen to that those 70 million people in in a biden administration of which they about which they are deeply cynical and and their cynicism isn't helped by like biden you know business as usual bombings in the middle east and that kind of stuff you know well i think a, a, first of all the issue of bombing in the middle east is a, i want to shell that for a moment simply because i don't think that's where those people's main concern is i think that in order to understand where we are and where we're going we should have a deeper understanding of why those people voted for him in 2016. The original impulse of fuck you all that was expressed through his winning in 2016 was I believe a legitimate impulse. People were correct in their assumption that the system had left them behind. There was going to be a, a populist rage of despair that expressed itself in electoral terms. I felt that. It was either going to be expressed through a progressive populism a la Bernie Sanders or an authoritarian populism versus Trump. It was the DNC that denied the American people the opportunity to present as an option in that election a, a progressive populist. And I'm not saying that I know for sure that Bernie would have won the primaries if the DNC had not put their uh, hands on the scale. But I feel very sure that if Bernie had, that he would have beaten Trump. The biggest uh, mistake that Biden can make now is to fail to provide for people what they were crying out for uh, in the 2016 election, which is a greater shot within the American economy. I know that the popular narrative is, oh, it wasn't about the economy, it was only about white supremacy. But if you look at something, let's take something like the Holocaust. Whenever you see a dictator who's able to scapegoat a people, whether it's Jewish people, black people, or whatever, it is the collective desperation, usually bedded in economic desperation, just as it was in Germany after World War I, that makes people so vulnerable to that kind of ideological capture. So right now, Biden has a chance. Is he going to give a massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity into the life of the average American? If he does, then I think we have a chance. What he's doing now, you know, Russell, during the Great Depression, uh, Roosevelt talked about the three R's, rescue, relief, and reform. Biden is trying to provide rescue and he's trying to provide relief, but, he, but nothing short of reform. Reform is going to change the trajectory enough. And uh, that reform, of course, would uh, necessitate that he stand up to Wall Street in a way that he says he is willing to, but this is where everything's to, uh, still to be seen. In terms of the Middle East, unfortunately, uh, I think too many Americans aren't. You know, it's interesting if you look at something like Yemen, for instance. Everybody was was yelling, you know, Bernie was talking about it. I was talking about it during the presidential campaign about the United States giving aerial support to the Saudis and their prosecution of their genocidal war against Yemen. So perfect example of everything where we are. So Biden gets in and he says, we will no longer support Saudi Arabia in their offensive offensive measures, right, against Yemen. So he stopped the aerial support. But we have not yet heard Blinken, 
or Biden take a strong stand or any stand at all. Well, there's been one uh, sort of underling who said, we don't support it. That blockade and that blockade, the Saudi blockade of Yemen, there, there is one Yemeni child starving every 75 seconds. Unfortunately, so that's, you know, Biden could stop that in 75 seconds. Um, or I don't know if he could stop in 75. He could take a strong stand that the United States does not support that blockade. That's where we are. The incremental changes, the changes that represent uh, different than Trump policy, not as horrible as Trump policy, good enough yet? No. No. And I think that anything but good enough is laying the foundations for a, a further installment of what has preceded it in 2016. Read the racism. I agree with your point as, as much as I'm qualified to that, um, you know, that the, the, the economic preconditions are required for scapegoating. Otherwise, there's no appetite for scapegoating. And uh, as the uh, Voldemort of neoliberalism, Tony Blair said, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. And I think tough on racism, tough on the causes of racism would be like a an, an, an interesting maxim to live by. And really the sort of Yemen and Middle East stuff, I feel the reason that it intersects with um, the, the sort of economically driven arguments that we've just touched upon is that it's... Prior to Biden's election, he said, you know, the Saudis won't be able to behave like this when we're elected. Then they're elected and they don't say anything to the Saudis. And they say, well, look, we've got certain economic relationships with the Saudis that mean we can't be prohibitive. So say that when you're campaigning. Otherwise, what people think is you ain't no different from the people you purported to replace. Now, Trump was a, you know, a very particular and specific thing. But in terms of, uh, you know, policy, Biden is indistinguishable from what's preceded him with regard to that issue and my suspicion will be looking at the kind of people that he uh, that are hired in high profile positions people from the tech industry people from wall street that this is not what it looks like to create even reform let alone radical change the kind of radical change that's going to be required to bring about the sort of changes that i imagine you and i are interested in well i i don't want to uh, underestimate what it means that he stopped the aerial support uh, to the Saudis uh, regarding the Yemeni war. Um, so it's not like it's indistinguishable. But my bottom line is is yours, Russell. I don't disagree. Other other than that one, uh, which 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 you can see in many places, there are changes. Which uh, there are changes that he has already uh, uh, made. There are uh, rules. Uh, for instance, give you an example. Trump had a talk about an obscene rule for every regulation, for every regulation that any agency uh, wanted to introduce, they had to introduce two deregulations. Right. So so that was the first day Trump was in power. The first day Biden was in power, he repealed that. So it, it, I, I don't want to um, consider some of these changes and improvements on Biden's part inconsequential because they're not inconsequential. Um, and however, I agree with you, it's, it's incrementalism. It's, it has the risk, we're at the risk of too little too late. And uh, all that this would be doing is delaying a global catastrophe. And as you said, paving the way for another Trump. 
I feel like I'm far enough away to, you know, like to have the comfort and ease of radicalism because I'm not in that situation. I don't, I've not stood on at a podium beside these people. And what I feel like is that if you can't notice it, if what, it, what if, if it, it requires a kind of forensic examination of policy to say, no, actually, we're doing this different, then you are some distance away from where you need to be. Because I think that there is a deep, deep yearning and appetite for change that people feel like sort of a, a bewildered sense of nihilism and loss and that culture is filling their minds with something dreadful and empty and low. And the only thing that matters is economics and powerful tech giants and financial institutions. And to sort of say, look, well, we've changed this regulatory thing. You know, I think it needs to be day one, regulation. <laughs> day two, these people are in jail. Day three, you know, like unless it feels like that, you know, that like I feel that the kind of people that I'm speaking to feel like they're being lied to. I, I, on one hand, what you're saying is correct, because what you're pointing out is the change has that visceral impact in order for it to create political force. On the other hand, you, you and I and many of us should not underestimate the difference that it makes in many people's lives, a $300 here and a $300 there, the difference that it will make in things like farming policy, the difference that it will make in economic policy, the difference it will make in many things that will touch people's lives, whether they realize that it was a, a change in Washington or not, where there will be less influence from big chemical companies, less influence from big agricultural companies, less influence from fossil fuel companies, less influence from um, gun manufacturers, not so much military industrial complex, but I think both are true. And of course, what, what the neoliberals are doing, which I find very concerning, is they're taking what you just said and they're trying, this is what Democrats have become very good at. It's saying the right stuff. So they've created their narrative that Biden is the new FDR. So instead of making the kind of transformative radical change that FDR made and that you're calling for, they're just saying he is. <laughs> but he's actually not. You're right. He's not. But he's moving in that direction. And once again, uh, well, once again, he's moving in that direction. That doesn't mean that that's his destination or even his intended destination. But once again, you can't you can't underestimate how radically different different it is than some of the genuinely um, democracy destroying assaults of of the Trump administration and their policies. I think he's moving in the direction of radical change with the same adeptness with which he ascends an airplane staircase. Now, what are your what are your feelings about uh, like uh, like a few sort of big topics, Marianne? What do you feel about uh, the Great Reset, the power of Bill Tech uh, of Bill Tech <laughs> of Bill Gates and big tech? You know, a lot of people are talking about Bill Gates' own ownership of farmland, Bill Gates' influence over the pharmaceutical industry, Bill Gates' influence uh, over vaccines what do you and the potential increase in power if there is any kind of covid passport introduced what do you think about that marianne there was a time when we uh busted monopolies in this country we have come to the point where we just accept monopolistic power 
And, you know, I think a lot of times it's interesting because whereas people on the left are so horrified by the deference of um, Republicans to gun manufacturers, people on the right are horrified by, by Democrats a deference, too easy deference to big pharmaceutical companies. Even though we had the, uh, the Sackler family, Purdue Pharmacy, uh, multi-billion dollar, even though that, the $8 billion was just a slap on the hand, we know what the predatory ph uh, pharmaceutical executives did uh, that contributed to 450,000 deaths from the opioid crisis. There is no reason to assume that they are pure as the driven snow in any other area. And yet there is this fear of, of, of recognizing any gray area there. And it, yes, it's deeply concerning. As far as the tech companies are concerned, smash them into a thousand pieces. The idea, you know, just smash them into a thousand pieces. And if we were prosecuting any standard antitrust uh, laws, that's exactly what we would be doing. But here's an example, Russell. The person that, uh, the antitrust person that, that Biden brought in is surprisingly progressive on just that topic. When it comes to Bill Gates, the whole, uh, uh, issue of the today they were talking about vaccine passports. Um, we need to do some really deep thinking about where we're going. I wonder, like I know that, like with your sort of famous work on something like a like a course in miracles and the kind of unique and groundbreaking territory that you have occupied in bringing quite complex spiritual ideas to a really really big audience it's difficult not to rely on a kind of rather hacky idea of a resurrected christ and what a resurrected christ would do in this political space and when we talk about you know an additional three hundred dollars and i i grew up in an ordinary working class single parent family and you know that that's the difference between a bailiff at the door coming to get a tv and not and but what I feel like is with the the opioid crisis and how that sort of, in a sense, takes place at a, the, the the judicial level of, as you say, slap on a hand, eight billion fine, right? That's sort of to a degree dealt with. You know, something that I know you will be aware of, and I imagine you've had to exclude from your discourse as you've entered more deeply into the political sphere, is that people don't, you don't get an opioid epidemic without a deep spiritual crisis. And the fact that it's at the level that it is indicates... A, uh, a, a, an astonishing um, pain body, a nationwide pain body. Like, how, how, and who, and when can these kind of ideas be discussed in a political sphere? Because I think this is where the hunger is, this is where the appetite is, and this is where the, you know, the technocratic wonkiness, it doesn't touch the sides. And I think that the danger of these incremental $300 here and there reforms is this burgeoning sense of these people are full of shit, these people are full of shit, give me something with meaning, give me some energy, give me some energy. Suddenly dark psychic forces enter, and we're like, I'm on board. This, at least this is real in some way. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And as someone who ran for president for the exact reason that you just said, I also see how the system works to try to guarantee that such a person uh, will be peripheralized. They have a pre-prescribed conversation, which is very different than what you just said, because what you just said uh, counters, obstructs and undermines their economic model. 
So they have a pre-prescribed conversation, which is not include what you just said. They have a pre-prescribed set of candidates who do not go where you just went. Anyone else, they will do whatever it takes. I've seen the character assassination. I've experienced the uh, politics of personal destruction. She's wacky. She's crazy. She's uh, anti-science. She's, uh, you know, I've seen what they will do. But I also saw how easily people were duped. So it's time for enough people who agree as in the things that you said, next time there's a candidate who is saying it, don't be so easily duped. And support. if you see a candidate who's standing up and saying what you and your heart believe needs to be said, which by definition is the 21st century conversation that we're having in every other area. I mean, in every other area, whether it's agriculture or business or science or healing, people are now in the 21st century. We're talking reparative. We're talking regenerative. We're talking reform. We're talking holistic. We're talking integrative. We're talking whole person. We're talking saving the planet. We're talking sustainability. Then you've got this dinosaur of a political system stuck somewhere in 1987. But they they are are spin doctors and they weave their magic. They weave this, this, this fiction that they're the only people qualified. Only the people who drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to drive us out of the ditch. So now it takes people getting the mindfuck that's involved there. That's the next step. Uh, I think, I hope that my candidacy opened the space for more people. Uh, if one of two things would happen, uh, somebody would say, well, she said it. I, why not say it? Other people might say, yeah, but look what they did to her. But I think a lot of people realize what they did. And so there are, you know, I'm just having the same conversation everybody's having. I just had it within the political sphere. And I think that we are moving closer. And um, now next time they try to do that, you know, people in this country are so, we saw what they did to Bernie in 2016. We saw what they did to Bernie in 2020. Some people can see what they, what they did to me, how the game is played. And uh, there's, there's this, the yearning that you were talking about for, for that which is authentic and true within the political sphere is going to somehow break through. I don't know how. Because people don't know, well, do we run third party or do we run as progressives within the Democratic Party? And then the Democratic establishment uh, sidelines the progressives. But then on the other hand, if we run third party, we could be Joel Stein and bring a Trump. These are questions, painful conundrums that we're living with. But I have faith that the energy is going to just, it's going to blast forward for the very reason you said people have had enough. And we realize that nothing less than the survivability of our species is at stake. It's not just the survivability of our democracy. In some cases, it is the survivability of our species for another hundred years. Yeah, that's amazing, Marianne. Thank you. Thank you. Now, yeah, I feel like you must have gone through a lot of, uh, what, a lot of pain there. How, like, I'm sure before you make a decision, like, I'm going <laughs> to run for the presidency, I'm sure a, a, a woman with your experience doesn't enter that arena lightly. Never, nevertheless, were there things about the opposition that you faced that surprised you? I mean, it seems just listening to you unpack it for the first time, I've realized that the Democrats would rather sacrifice a term to Trump than sacrifice their party to Bernie, 
so their political ideology is in a sense it's warped and it's not actually about what is best for ordinary american people like it's almost like that's become some um, idea on the horizon that's difficult to make out how what kind of, was there anything about the experience of running that surprised you both about the machinery of the democratic party the behavior of the media what it was like you know whether gender and sex came into it spirituality what what were the things that sort of surprised you and hit you i suppose i mean on a personal level I suppose it's a little naive to have felt this way, but I was surprised at the viciousness. Um, I was surprised at the unholy alliance between, clearly between the political establishment and the media. Um, clearly if uh, Tom Perez lifts an eyebrow, Anderson Cooper runs with it three days later. Uh, I was surprised by the lack of ethics of so many journalists, how they will use an anonymous tweet as a source, how they will decide what their take is on an issue. Not all journalists, some journalists are fair, but far too many of them decide on their take on an issue or on a person before they even write the article. And when they find out any facts of the contrary, they don't care. And I was surprised by what you just said, which is clearly there are some people who would have preferred that Trump win another term than to have Bernie Sanders be uh, the candidate. I was on the inside uh, of, you know, I was in the belly of that beast. I saw it. I saw it up close and personal. And um, I was, uh, but you know, when you ask me what I was surprised about, Russell, as much as I was surprised by how deeply vicious and corrupt and, and, um, and um, absolutely unwilling to open itself to any other perspectives than its own of the political media industrial complex, I was equal, equally exhilarated by the intelligence and decency and dignity of the voters. So it's like two parallel universes. There, you talk to voters and you can't believe how cool they are how knowledgeable they are, how, how everything that you just described they are, how like, yeah, they are, how, yes, I'm open to think about that. Well, I hadn't thought about it that way. Like really everything that you would hope for. And then you leave that event and you, and you open up your, your phone and you see how the system is operating and, and on social media and their articles, they are two parallel universes. And what's happened, and they, and they I think, reflect the two parallel universes of the simultaneous phenomena happening in the world today. Everything that we need, you're an example of it, many people are examples of it. We don't have a dearth of geniuses on this planet. We don't have a dearth of people with new ideas. We don't have a dearth of people who know how to turn things around, whether it has to do with our food supply, our water, our agriculture, business, science, medicine. There are people who know what to do. They are not resourced by huge corporate entities because they do not deliver short-term corporate profits and in many cases undermine short-term uh, profits. So the old system, the old uh, breed of capitalism and the, and the unholy alliance, which is basically fascistic between government and those corporate entities, they're not stupid. Well, I think a lot of the people in government actually are, but these CEOs are not. But they just want to squeeze every last dollar out of where they are now before they are forced to transition. Right. We don't have time. We don't have time for that. 
we don't have time. So now they're greenwashing. You have big agricultural companies saying they're investing in regenerative agriculture. You have fossil fuel companies saying they're investing in green energy. No, they're not. They're doing little tiny things to make you think they're really nice guys when they're not. And so it's a race for time right now. It's a race for time. The conversation is coalescing. The consciousness is coalescing. And now we have to have enough people who are willing to transform that consciousness into actual political force. And we'll see who, we'll see whether or not we get there in time. Other great civilizations have crashed and burned and we need to uh, snap out of our magical thinking, which would make us think it couldn't happen to us. That's cool. I like, um, you know, when you say that about the greenwashing and the tiny little reforms and we're investing in this and the sort of social gestures around uh, the rights of women or the rights yeah. of anybody, I feel these things are, this is not where change is going to come from. This is not where change is going to come from. Um, I also, even when we, when you had not long launched your campaign and we had a conversation at our mutual friend Jeff Krasno's place, Wanderlust in Los Angeles, I was obviously, you know, we were somewhat preaching to the converted given it was at a yoga center, but I felt like, my God, I felt like your, the, your rhetoric was spot on. I feel like, you know, I felt like, oh, wow, this stuff's in the conversation now. This is what's important to me. This has entered the conversation. Having watched it, play out and uh, you know props for your boldness in being willing to go in there it feels like a kind of a confirmation that this you know like any party that's willing to sacrifice its raison d'etre government in order that the general ideals of their party survive and their sort of um I don't know, their sort of primogeniture, their sort of political primogeniture of like Clinton, Biden, Clinton, Biden, <laughs> forever. <laughs> like a don't leave out, Obama was the, there are several puppet masters there, don't leave out Obama. Yes, yes, I feel you, I feel you. I feel like, you know, and I agree with what you're saying about like people more broadly, it, like, you know, it, where you, like when, it, before I'd been to America, I had like certain, like, oh, right, it's only LA and New York where that's worth going to. And I drove across America one time and like, it was like everyone's sort of smart and people talk to you about Noam Chomsky and service stations in Kansas, you know, like, and people like are willing to explore some pretty out there ideas. And in a sense, we don't, we have to explore some, pretty out there ideas. I feel like this has pr provoked an anecdote in you, Marianne. Well, it is a it is a fiction that the only cool people are on the coasts. And I'm sure that you can look at the numbers of where people are watching your uh, program. I mean, the same conversation that we had, as you said, at the yoga studio in LA, what was exciting for me is how many people in Iowa, they're not stupid, mm. they get it. How many people in New Hampshire, they're not stupid, they get it. How many people in Nevada, how many people in South Carolina? So the, the opportunity is so um, it is so there. I feel that the, this larger, new, emergent yearning and conversation is not, uh, not only is it not in any one area of the United States, it's not in any one area of the globe. It's something coming up from the bottom of things. It's not in any one ethnicity. It's not in any one nationality. It's not in any one um, culture. It's something coming up from the bottom of things and it's everywhere. 
we need to harness it for political purposes. And that's what that collectivized hatred, dark psychic forces of collectivized hatred, that's what, it, that's what uh, Nazism is. That's what uh, white supremacy is. It's that consciousness collectivized and operationalized. So we now have to take the higher consciousness, love, mercy, justice, sustainability, devotion, reverence for life and for planet and harness it and collectivize it and operationalize it for political purposes. I think, yeah, God, that's, I agree with you. That seems like that is what must happen. I believe in God, you know, you believe in God. Um, and given what you literally just said, sometimes in prayer and meditation, uh, you know, having spent time, not obviously to anything like the degree that you have, trying to deal with these ideas, I feel like, you know, kind of a despair and a despondency in dealing with this kind of machine. And then sometimes I feel, oh, God is real. God is all powerful. God can become manifest through relationships, through us, through our awakening. How do we serve God in this situation? How do we serve God in this conversation? And do you sometimes think, well, all I've got to do is get in alignment and God will zap through? How do, you, what, what, how do you see our roles as individuals and the role of the sublime and the divine and the harnessing of those conscious forces that you described in practical terms and in you know, spiritual terms as well? Just as the body has an immune system, the psyche has an immune system, and a civilization, a body politic has an immune system. And each of us are immune cells. And every cell in the body is assigned to where it needs to go. It assigned to the pancreas, assigned to the, uh, assigned to the lungs, assigned to the bones. Then the highest intelligence of the cell is to collaborate with other cells in order to serve the healthy function of the organ and the organism of which they are part. Every once in a while, a cell disconnects from its collaborative function. That's a malignancy, right? Mm. And what has happened to the human race is that we have been infected by a malignant consciousness. And that is the thought, it's all about me. Yeah. We, we have not, we have forgotten that our highest intelligence is collaborative. That has caused a, what could be a mortal blow to our civilization. What's now happened is the immune system has, has kicked in and each of us are being assigned. You're assigned, Russell. Clearly you're living your assignment. I'm trying to live mine. Everybody listening is living theirs. Some people, their assignment is regenerative agriculture. Some people, their assignment is new economic systems. Some people, their assignment is the political system. I think we, we should remember that when it comes to the things that are devolutionary, we can see it with our physical eyes. Some of the things that are evolutionary that are going on, we don't necessarily see it reported the way it might be, but you can feel it in the air. You can feel that, that, that we all recognize each other. It's very similar to really the 60s. It's the sense of we all know we're part of a counter movement uh, to the prevailing status quo. The status quo will not disrupt itself, but nature disrupts it. That's why teenagers are rebellious. That's why every generation has to bring forth something new. And I feel it coming up from the bottom of things. None of us, and none of us can handle all of it. No individual is the answer, right? The savior consciousness is inside us all. 
but we can all be guided by our own, you can see it in religious spiritual terms, our dharma, guidance of the Holy Spirit. You can see it in, in, in secular terms, just doing what's right in front of you, whatever seems to be the right thing to do. But I believe it is an immune system. It's white blood cells rushing to the wound. And I think that's happening right now. And if we all wake up and ask in our own way on any given day, where would I best go today? Where could I best serve? How could I best contribute? Then all those little acts are adding up to something. I also think having lived through the era of the assassinations of Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, et cetera, it's a good thing. It's a good thing, not a bad thing, that we don't have major soloists. The, the zeitgeist of this revolution is less about soloists and more about a choir. Because I saw what they can do. If it's just soloists, they can shoot the soloists. If this one has to be a choir. This has to be everybody singing our note. They can't shoot a song. And that song is so compelling. That melody is an ancient melody and all of us remember it on some level. And so I don't doubt that love is going to prevail. The only question is how much suffering, human and other species suffering, is going to have to happen first before the resurrection. You know, it's the symbolic three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's our choice how long that three days is. Yes, why would it not be analogous to biochemistry, given that it's a projection of biochemistry, given that every human individual is a conglomeration of that biochemistry? Yes. The uh, patterns that, of that nature are everywhere, on every level, in every system, the same pattern. Do you feel, Marianne, you referenced the 60s, that that somehow the uh, uh, optimism and countercultural potency was metastasized into the very sort of individualism that you have diagnosed as this kind of core uh, problem of our time that the 60s and we can do what we want became the 80s and I can do what I want and even at the heart of sort of new age inverted commas spirituality is a kind of a sense of this is about me you know, then not enough service. No, I think the exact opposite. What Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, and others represented were the highest level of philosophical ideals within the political sphere. They were not talking about service to self. They were talking about service to the whole. They were shot and killed in front of our eyes. And the bullets that shot them psychically shot a generation. The message of those assassinations was very loud and clear. There will be no further protest. You can do whatever you want in the private sphere, but leave the public sector to whoever it is that wants it so bad, they're willing to kill in order to control it. Just in case we hadn't gotten the message, they then killed the students at Kent State. You cannot underestimate the level of trauma and PTSD that infused a generation which saw our heroes shot and killed in front of our eyes. So a generation which had embraced 
the collective had been warned, go home, do take all your genius, put it into the private sector. You can still have a choice. You can have the green one, you can have the blue one, you can have the yellow one, but you won't have, you, you'll have choice when it comes to dishwashers. You will have choice when it comes to uh, uh, what kind of cheese you want. You will have choice when it comes to uh, your fast uh, fashion, but you will not have political choices. And so everybody moved into their silos. I don't think that it, uh, I think it was in a way the opposite of what you said. And so even the greatest impulses were distorted by a perversion of the capitalist uh, uh, paradigm. And we ended up where we ended up. But what's happening now, Russell, is in my opinion, you have people like myself who, I was, I was young, but old enough to be on the tail end of all that who realize at this point in our lives that the idea that we're going to die knowing in our hearts, we didn't really do what we came here to do, is actually scarier to us than the thought that they might kill us if we do. And you have this perfect third with these younger ones coming up with the requisite rambunctious and rambunctiousness and to hell with it, and we don't have to do it the way they did. And so all of the self-referenced, narcissistic, um, me, me, me mentality, I believe is dissolving away. The old political paradigm speaks to what you want. The new political paradigm speaks to what we all need. And uh, the only question, like we said, is uh, how fast, how powerful uh, are we gonna get there in time to avoid the kind of catastrophic results, which would, I don't believe, mean humanity wouldn't survive, but which would mean immeasurable suffering on the way there. I spoke to Vandana Shiva the other day. She's just uh, in, yeah. And um, like, so she said that um, it was a brilliant analogy, I believe. She said that, you know, she talked about how like the colonization of, you know, British colonization of India and, you know, the colonization of that period is sort of being replicated now by sort of tech companies mapping genomes, by big tech companies harnessing, harvesting attention, consciousness. And from your perspective, surely that might mean the essence of all life itself being harnessed by these organizations. She also sort of said this thing, so I'm still sort of trying to fully understand, but she sort of said like that, how British colonization was predicated on divide and conquer. This is sort of a common idea, you know, and like look at what happened after, you know, Indian independence and the establishment of Pakistan and eventually Bangladesh. And, uh, and, um, And then she said that a comparable thing is happening culturally now where these new divisions are being evoked culturally and socially where through various, I guess what she was saying, through various identity-led political movements which may have high aims. But as we've touched upon in this uh, this conversation, can somewhat be culturally placated through the sort of implementation of, you know, our Revlon are doing a, you know, calling their skin lightening products something different. Companies are putting out black squares, you know, like sort of people are promoting superficially certain ideas. And I thought that's an interesting take on that, that a lot of a time when there is the possibility of union on a global scale, collaboration, cooperation on a global scale, division has become promoted to the forefront. Now, 
Um, see if you could incorporate into this answer your sort of, uh, I believe, important stance on reparations around slavery. And obviously that's an issue that sort of like, that, that runs deep and actually gets to the heart of something that's only being tagged, I think, in a superficial cultural way, not to suggest that Black Lives Matter movement isn't significant and hasn't done important work but in terms of remedy, solution. And I wonder what you think about the sort of complexity of uh, the potential divisiveness of identity politics versus its veracity, and uh, touch on that thing that Vandana Shiva said too. It's not potential, it's very much there. The American ideal is out of many, one. And when you're imbalanced in either direction, you miss the profundity of the concept. So if you're stressing unity, at the expense of diversity, we know the terrible problems that arise there, including your unwillingness to recognize such things as uh, indigenous uh, genocide of indigenous peoples, uh, slavery, and so forth. But on the other hand, if you only uh, concentrate on the individual identities and you miss the fact that the whole point is the underlying fealty to common principles, then you become an equally uh, unjust uh, perspective. There is as, listen, there's as much self-righteousness and craziness on the left as there is self-righteousness and craziness on the right. And I think that um, many people are beginning to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever query whether or not, you know, when we're discussing this and you're talking about sort of a choral model as opposed to a soloist model, do you think that perhaps the solution might be the establishment of alternative and more more truly representative systems rather than trying to intervene with existing systems that seem to have built into their heart their own uh, preservation i.e rather than trying to create a party compete in a a democratic election formulate a new set of principles and systems run them entirely independently within existing countries and just say we're not in this anymore anyone else who wants to join this one join this one I think in other countries that might be a realistic plan. It's beyond unrealistic in the United States. And also I believe that at the deepest level it's unnecessary in the United States. I think that the metaphysical underpinnings of the Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution are extraordinary. So what you had were 56 men, all of whom were risking their lives to sign the Declaration of Independence. If the British had won the war, they all would have been hanged for treason. So these extraordinary principles, more spiritually evolved than had ever formed the core of any founding of any nation, the very idea, the idea that all people, all men, are created equal and should have the opportunity to soar. 56 men signed that declaration at the risk of their lives and 41 of them were slave owners. So that dichotomy is baked into the cake. We have always been both. We have always been, and in every generation, we reiterate this, our generation no less than any other. We are the forces that are ablaze and that actually have the documents to support the, 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 the capacity of every individual to have the opportunity to soar. 
And then you have the moneyed forces that say, but it doesn't mean women, it doesn't mean black people, it doesn't mean immigrants, it doesn't mean the poor in every generation. So we don't need a new system. We need greater commitment to the system as it was originally designed, but which has now been hacked. And that's what I meant before about when I was on the campaign and I saw that people are smart, but the, the idea was if you give people uh, uh, if you give people free education so that there's the development of their critical thought processes, if you give people a free press so they know what's going on, if you give people the right to assemble, so if people have the opportunity to know what's going on and you allow democracy to thrive, then you can depend on not that they'll never make a mistake, but that ultimately they'll move in, in a direction that is generative and life-sustaining. The problem we have now is a political system that does more to thwart that process than to exalt it. So no, I don't think we need a new system. I think we need to save and to rescue the one we have from uh, forces that claim to be working on its behalf or at least give lip service to that, even though they probably know damn well that they're not. I'm mulling that over, Marianne, because I feel that what could be presented as a dichotomy could potentially be a hypocrisy that at that time the definition man was not uh, an omission, but an understanding that they're not men, they're chattel, and that women are not the same. No doubt about it. But there are amendments made to the Constitution. I mean, there was the amendment that gave women the right to vote. I mean, that's, that's why it's a living document. And that's why we reform these things. But you amend the document, you don't tear it up and throw it away. And that, and that the, 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 the land itself, you know, obviously, I'd, you know, we don't need to rehearse the history of that land mass and, and how it was acquired and the expense of its acquisition. So, again, I, I query the, the fealty to, to that document and to its principles, whilst there are certain Enlightenment principles that are sort of attractive in there and some certainly some beautiful poetic philosophical language. In practice, it's been a, a series of rather beautifully packaged hegemonies i would say and i'm not an anti-american person i really love the country of america but i wonder if any of these things can truly be undone within that framework if you can continue to sort of cross out a bit add a bit like sorry about you know reparations for the slavery sorry for nicking your country apologies for the institutionalized sexism and the white supremacy i sometimes do think perhaps we should start again not like I don't mean the annihilation of, you know, I'm not suggesting burn your Jimi Hendrix albums or get rid of the many cultural artifacts that are incredible. I'm saying in terms of the way that people are able to govern their own lives, what is the advantage to ordinary people of having a centralized force, a relationship with a sort of a, 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 a sort of a sovereign power, albeit a republic? If um, if historically all it has done is lived in the service of the powerful while doing pretty close to the minimum for ordinary people, except when opposition was fierce enough to mean that con concessions were granted. The Constitution allowed for slavery, but the Constitution also was the basis of the abolitionist movement. 
The Constitution allowed for the institutionalized suppression of women, but the Constitution was also uh, the basis for the women's suffragette movement. The Constitution allowed for segregation, but the Constitution was also the basis for the civil rights movement. As Dr. King said, we're here to cash a check. We're not asking for new rights. We're here to cash a check. And so the same, uh, the same constitution, which obviously uh, did not stand historically uh, for all of the rights and freedoms that it purported to protect, is also the basis even today. Uh, for the correction of these mistakes. And, you know, you were talking about reparations. The conversation about reparations is not just an apology for white supremacy. It's not just an apology uh, for slavery. It's actually an effort to make an amends. Even when you're talking about indigenous cultures, the, the one Biden appointee who is so exciting to watch right now because she really gets it and she's really introducing things that would create a new, a new era are Deb Holland or Halland, I'm not sure actually how you pronounce her name, who was the new Secretary of the Interior. So it has to do not just with the system, but with the consciousness of the people who are actually inhabiting those positions of power. Everything that you're talking about, Russell, is bad public policy. Those things will not be changed except by good public policy. So the last thing we need is for people to think, oh, the change can't come from there. The change can't come from electoral politics. If ever there's something that would make the right wing regressive forces thrilled is that is enough people just sitting it out because of their cynicism mm. or their belief that the system can't be saved. When we talk about reparations, I, like these are conversations I've had somewhat extensively with uh, this, the sociologist and black academic Hindi Andrews. And when he talks about reparations, he doesn't he, talk well. Doesn't talk not only not exclusively about America. Being English, although he, that's certainly not entirely how he characterizes himself. He says that Englishness is problematic if you are not white. But like he says that like this is I'm obviously paraphrasing. He's an academic, so it's going to be a paraphrase. But what he seems to basically say is like if the United Kingdom were to give what it owed to the nations of Africa and to India, you that would be it for the United Kingdom. You, you can't have it. And I think perhaps a comparable thing could be said of the United States of America. If like a meaningful, you know, I know you know the 12 steps, right? And for... You know, for us, um, sort of step the step nine amends process is, you know, we make a complete apology and any necessary amends except when to do so would injure them or others. And like, I feel like an amends to the the victims of colonization, um, uh, 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 an appropriate amends would mean it would impoverish any nation that were willing to commit to it. It would be the end of America. It would be the end of the United Kingdom. Well, it's exactly what you said, though, except where it would harm you or others. If you actually take, there were historians believe that there were between four and five million people who were formerly enslaved at the end of the Civil War. Now, General uh, Tecumseh Sherman promised that every former enslaved uh, family of four would receive 40 acres and a mule. If we were to add all that up today, you're right that would be trillions of dollars. And even uh, we could argue whether or not that would destroy the economy of the United States. But one thing we do know for sure is that that would not be politically feasible. But I believe that something along the line of between 500 billion and a trillion uh, would be politically feasible. 
were uh, the consciousness of uh, to build around the conversation the way it needs to. Um, I think that there is a, an, an emerging uh, and growing sensibility uh, that a great historical wrong was done and that it needs to be righted. Uh, Germany has paid $89 billion in reparations to Jewish organizations since World War II. Uh, obviously that doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen, uh, but I think it's gone far towards establishing emotional and psychological as well as economic reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. There, that war was over in 1945. We're talking mm -hmm. about something that ended in 1865 and we're still handing generation to generation this toxic baton. And ours can be the generation that says, let's just interrupt it. Let's do what it takes. Let's end this now. Um, I don't know, you end it. You know, it's not like it's, it's going to solve everything. It's not like slavery will not have occurred. It's not going to be the ultimate fix it. But I think it would, uh, serious reparations would have a serious, if done effectively and if enough. If it's not enough, it's, but a serious uh, plan of reparations I believe would interrupt a, a trajectory of horror that, like I said, just keeps being passed from generation to generation. The primary—that's great. The primary function of amends, of course, like is you know to amend the direction of the sort of the the principle. I mean, when it's conducted as an individual, you can one can assume a degree of sort of you know personal sovereignty. When it's done on behalf of a nation, one has to assume that that nation has a kind of a degree of oneness and speaks for everybody. But in this time of division and divisiveness, it's very difficult to make that kind of assumption, and it's also very difficult to presume a shared sense of direction in such a fragmented country is uh, you know this is not exclusive to america you know everywhere but uh, but america which is the country we're talking about that's why leadership matters if you look at the personality of a lincoln that's why the decreased moral authority of our political leadership matters because people know how often what they say is bullshit and that's why the emergence of of, of deeper moral resonance, deep, genuine moral resonance uh, within political leadership is, is it will be a necessary component to the kind of corrections that need to occur. It will be when someone speaks with enough, enough of a voice of moral authority, such as Martin Luther King did, such as Bobby Kennedy did, uh, that you will have a critical mass of people who are willing uh, to go along with the changes that need to be made. Marianne, thank you so much for explaining that. It's it's uh, incredible to speak with you, and I must say, it's you sound uh, um, you know given that two of the the two conversations we had previously, one was on the eve of you announcing your candidacy, candidacy uh, a festival we both did. The second was in the sort of the sort of exciting fanfare and balloons and mayhem of it, and it's. It's wonderful to speak to you now and to feel your light and presence and grace and to uh, receive your uh, hard, I imagine, hard-earned wisdom. So uh, thank you very much. I feel the same way about you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for what you do and thank you for having me on. Thanks, Marianne Williamson. I hope we get to talk together soon. Me too. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to me and Marianne Williamson having that chat there. It's the best of our chats over the years. I uh, think it's time to wrap this up. Do you, Jen? Yeah. She looks amazing, though. She's beautiful. I think she's, she's 70 this year. What a beautiful, beautiful woman. 
Yeah, and she's so smart and powerful. I really enjoyed talking to her. All right, should we, like, next week, Glenn Greenwald, you got some good people coming up? Mm-hmm. Make sure you do, Jen. Let's get some more controversial folk on, shall we? No. Why no? Do you want controversial people? I don't know. I don't like controversy. Do I Usually you try and prevent it, and now you're asking for it. No, I don't want controversy. Okay. Quite life, until we're ready to start the old communities. And then we'll move forward. I think my toe popped out his socket today, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> well, <Why>? that was... <laughs> Jen... It's too late because I'm not going to talk about my toe injuries with someone whose first response is. Uh, well, I don't want. Why did pop out? What were you doing? Uh, were, you, were you doing yoga? Yeah. And That's that, a lie. <laughs> what do you mean? You lie? lied to me. You lied to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lie. You lied to me. Listen, goggles. Listen, goggles down there in the dirt. In the dirt. Well, it would have been in the sea or the swimming pool. Ah, sea or swimming pool. Was it confined space or was it free space? Mm-hmm. I'm hungry, Jen. I think I'll have a sandwich before we do the podcast with yoga with Adrian. Okay, we've got five minutes. So Just get it down. Us. All right, I hope you enjoyed that podcast, everyone. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye. So